Welcome to TYT Interviews. We've got a fascinating one today for you guys. There's actually three different doctors we're going to talk to you about stem cell research. We're here in YouTube Space New York. Let me introduce the doctors first, Dr. Todd Evans, uh, Dr. Jim Chung, and uh, Dr. Uh, Albano Melli. That's right. Okay, as good as I can get it. Okay, uh, so now this is a fascinating story. It, it, it involves a couple of different countries and, and one person's heart uh, and, and how we've, some of these doctors have uh, tracked the mutations and hopefully fix some of the issues that are at hand. It involves stem cell research. It's just, it's enormously fascinating. The more I talk to them off air, the more I get a sense of how much I love science. <laughs> okay, so in my mind, these are the good guys. And so let's, let's have an interesting conversation about uh, how it all works and how we all uh, came to be in the same room. So Dr. Chung, let me start with you. Um, uh, we have uh, someone on staff, uh, Praveen Singh, she's the head of business development for the Young Turks, and she had an issue with her heart and she came to you. So what was her issue? So uh, what, actually what had happened was that Praveen, several years before seeing me, um, had actually had an event where she just completely blacked out while uh, at her office on the phone. Uh, and um, she, it was actually quite a significant event. She wound up getting hospitalized. She was found to have an arrhythmia, um, had several procedures done, um, and um, had actually done well on treatment. But uh, as it turned out, she had found out that her mother actually had the same uh, condition. So actually, then fast forward a few years later, that's when she met me in my office. Um, she had explained to me, and she was actually really an advocate for herself because she really, um, you know, she was actually pregnant at the time and said, look, you know, um, I really think I have a genetic problem here. Um, uh, you know, I had uh, at the time a diagnosis of what was called short coupled torsade de plant. It's quite a mouthful, but what it is, it's a form of arrhythmia that tends to affect patients who have otherwise normal hearts. Okay, so totally, you know, she was young, otherwise healthy, no other medical problems, but she passed out from an arrhythmia. So it turned out that her mother had the same exact condition, so two very rare occurrences, and she had the wherewithal to think, you know, this could be genetic. What, what can we do to maybe find out if, um, if there's an actual mutation that we can identify with actually very direct implications for herself because she was pregnant at the time for children, you know, with a child, and she was worried that how, you know, is, this po is it possible that I might pass this along to my, you know, to my child and future generations. So, um, so that's really how, how this all started. So let me understand that because that's, that's pretty scary for a lot of people. So you might not realize you have this condition that's right. and, and you might simply have, uh, is it cardiac arrest that you go right, into? Pretty much. Right. And does it, do we know if it's the same thing or, or not necessarily the same but similar to the conditions we see on TV from time to time? Like if you're a sports fan, you know Reggie Lewis died uh, suddenly while playing basketball. Um, and, and do we know how, how many people it affects? Is it similar in how overall, how much does this affect uh, the country? Right, so thankfully it's very unusual. So um, a lot of patients who have cardiac arrest tend to have had prior heart problems, like patients who've had um, myocardial infarctions, me meaning they had a blockage to a part of their heart uh, where uh, part of the heart has died as a result. Or a patient has a very weakened heart, what we call cardiomyopathy. So that, to just put it in perspective, is still the vast majority of what causes cardiac arrest. However, there is a distinct subset of patients who have otherwise totally normal hearts, who are young and otherwise healthy, 
who may have some unbeknownst condition that predisposes them to have cardiac arrest. So exactly like the examples you've mentioned, so Reggie Lewis had um, you know, something called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy where he had a thickening of his heart. Um, obviously, it led him to have electrical abnormalities of the heart, but he was a NBA basketball player. So obviously, it wasn't affecting him so much that would prevent him from competing at a very high level. So every so often, absolutely, we hear these stories of you know, marathon runners or, or other athletes who are otherwise very much, you know, high-performing um, people who may drop, you know, uh, pass out suddenly or even have a life-threatening arrhythmia. So, again, put it in perspective, it's relatively infrequent. Um, so, for example, just to put it in perspective, the most common form of the, uh, this kind of a disorder called long QT syndrome affects, you know, one in a thousand, one in two thousand, let's say, mm -hmm. which is not... It's not super rare, but it's definitely out there, but it's not you know, super common, but it's definitely something we need to know about. So two, about 280,000 people a year die from heart attacks, uh, but you, it's a smaller subset that are affected by this. I think what scares a lot of people is that it just seems to come out of the blue and there's no other indication. We all know to get our cholesterol checked, we all know to do our checkups, and so you have a sense of how you can make your heart healthier, but if you have this, boom, you're either, in Reggie Lewis's case, you're exercising, and all of a sudden you get it, or in Praveen's case, you're at rest, right. and all, and that's even scarier in some way. You you didn't even know that that was possible. So now talking about that case in her particular case, they know what it is. You guys know what it is, mm -hmm. and you know that it's a mutation, mm -hmm. right? So so we think it might be genetic, but we don't know, right. right? So now how do we find out more about it? How how do we then transition to Dr. Evans? Sure. Yes. So. So basically, um, so with Praveen's urging, actually, we decided to send off genetic testing. Actually, to be honest with you, I was quite skeptical in the beginning because I felt that her story did not fit. So there are a list of disorders that cause sudden you know, cardiac arrest in otherwise healthy hearts, and there's a list. And her condition did not really fall under the known list, which has been known to be associated with specific mutations. So obviously, there are a lot of genetic abnormalities that for which are out there that we just don't know what genes they are because we haven't explored every possible gene out there. Mm -hmm. so, so at the time, I actually was a bit skeptical about doing genetic testing because I felt that, you know, what's the likelihood of us finding something that could be low? And actually, there are downsides to finding something because if you find something, that mutation, the, the, the alteration of the genetic code, may or may not be what's actually causing the condition. So what happens is that uh, you may, the downside of doing genetic testing when you don't know what you're testing is that you may found some abnormality which is actually totally benign, you know, it's just as benign as difference in hair color, but then you link it to some potentially, you think, fatal condition um, without the full scientific knowledge of what's going on. So in any case, just to backtrack, so in Praveen's case, we did the genetic testing and we found the mutation in a gene, which is really quite surprising because that mutation is associated with arrhythmias generally with exercise. And in her condition, it occurred purely at rest. So at the time, we said, like, well, that's interesting. And then we tested the mother. And lo and behold, the mother had the exact same mutation. Now, that doesn't prove anything, mm -hmm. right? So that's the thing is now we have two patients with relatively uncommon presentation with a relatively rare mutation. And then now, the, however, the hard work begins, which is making sure we can prove that we have the science to make the association between the, um, the actual mutation and the actual medical condition we're trying to make the diagnosis for. And that's where, you know, 
Dr. Melly and Dr. Evans steps in here where we can actually give us the scientific evidence to support that hypothesis. So already this is really interesting and, and a little scary for people if they, if they have this and so they're rooting for you I think <laughs> to, to get this right. But I think it's about to get more interesting to see what Dr. Evans and Dr. Melly have done. So you send Praveen's blood to Dr. Evans. Dr. Evans, what do you do with the blood? Well, what, I, what our group did with the blood was to, um, we're actually turning them into stem cells. What we'd like to do is be able to study Praveen's cardiomyocytes or, or other cellular components of our heart. But of course, we can't do that. And, uh, a, a physician can study various clinical aspects of, of um, her condition, but we'd actually like to understand the molecular basis for what's going on um, uh, to actually be able to understand um, the biochemistry in terms of what, how the proteins are functioning in hearts. There are certain things we can do now that even five or six years ago we just couldn't do. Uh, a lot of times, for example, you could study somebody's blood cells and try to make an assumption about how a, a gene being dysfunctioned there relates to a cardiomyocyte, but that's a big stretch. What we'd actually like to be able to do is generate cardiomyocytes, sort of replicate, do what we call the disease in a dish, actually create functioning cardiac tissue in the dish, which has the exact same genetic makeup of the patient. And we can do that now. So what we do is we can take blood cells and introduce uh, four genes that are called pluripotency genes. They're genes that uh, are important for imparting a phenotype of a stem cell, uh, similar to an embryonic stem cell. It allows these cells now uh, to become reprogrammed so that they forget basically that they're a blood cell. Actually, one of the beauties of this process is that blood is easy to obtain um, just from the, the periphery. Everybody goes to the clinic and gives a, bl a blood draw. We need very little blood. We, we use the blood cells that will normally make red blood cells, which is the most abundant cell in your body, and we, so we can expand in a petri dish these uh, what are called erythroblasts and we introduce a virus, which is an engineered virus. And that virus is such that it will go into these red blood cell precursors and express these pluripotency genes. Uh, essentially uh, uh, erasing the memory of that cell as a red cell. And uh, the culture conditions are such that we can capture cells as they transition and reprogram and become uh, a stem cell and themselves become pluripotent. The reason that's important is that one of the great features of a pluripotent cell is that we can grow them in, in a dish and we can make as many of them as we want. We can grow them up, grow them up, grow them up. And so that's occurring right now actually at, at Weill Cornell Medical School in, a, in our incubators. Uh, now the beauty is that over the last five or ten years, my, that's something that my own group is very much involved in, but many other laboratories are working in, in actually using these embryonic, these are actually called induced pluripotent stem cells. IPS cells. It doesn't do us much good just to grow up lots and lots of them, but we have to do something with them. And so a lot of people have been working on the protocols to then differentiate them into different cell types. So you could start with a blood cell, reprogram it back to the stem cell, make a lot of it, and now induce it to turn into whatever cell type you like. And one of those, uh, which we now have very good protocols for, are cardiomyocytes, or cells that make the beating heart. We're also very interested in making other cells of the heart, like the cells of the, the conduction system that's involved in controlling this rhythmic beating 
um, and, and we're very actively involved in that as well. So we can make those cells in the dish. And uh, as Dr. Chung was saying, it's, it's just absolutely true. Even if you took a cell and, for example, put in that mutation, even in a cardiomyocyte, it's not really what we want to study because the genetic background will be different and genes interact with each other. So what we really need to do is have the exact genetic background to understand how that affects cardiomyocyte function. Okay, so let me try to break this down. And, and I love this because I, I, you, a lot of times I deal with politics and you guys are so much smarter than the politicians <laughs> that it's, an, it's exhilarating to talk to you guys, okay? And, and, and I'm trying to learn as, as best as I can. So now you can turn the, the red blood cells into stem cells and so already that's amazing. It is amazing. So uh, we were chatting earlier, that was one of the pioneering events that did lead to the Nobel Prize in 2012 mm -hmm. by Shinya Yamanaka and his mm -hmm. colleagues. It's so when, when you've got the stem cells, can you, uh, if I'm understanding it right, and that's where I need to help here, you can make them into heart cells of that particular person, right? C can you do other cells, liver, kidney, you can do all of that. And so then you can begin to study how that person's heart cells reacts when you introduce a disease into it to be able to track it. Is, is that roughly right? It's roughly right. Now, there are many caveats to this because, of course, even though you can make, for example, heart cells, cardiomyocytes f that really are from the patient, essentially, I mean, secondarily derived, but they're not a heart. And so they're not... Uh, uh, you know, affiliated with the whole physiological response that occurs in a living human being. So it's a very much of a surrogate assay. That's what we call it, you know, disease in a dish. But um, they do function. They'll beat. They'll have this, hopefully the same physical characteristics as they did in the person. Uh, you can now have as many of them as you want. And so you can look for what other proteins or genes might be altered in those cells. They're very easy now to add drugs to to test a screen for whether or not drugs have give certain responses. So it's a way to bootstrap actually from a patient into essentially a clinical trial in a dish to think, to, to think about pharmacological approaches to, to, um, to working on the disease. So uh, now I, I'm going to make it personal for me. I, I have a fairly rare uh, skin disease, okay? Um, it's called pemphigus vulgaris. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. No reason you would be, right? It, it's not in your fields. Um, so could we then take uh, my kids' uh, red blood cells and, and test them? Uh, is that a different uh, course of action or, or to see if they would have it also uh, because it is genetic? Uh, and then how we can treat it afterwards? So my point being, forget about me, Forget about Praveen, can this be applied across the board with other genetic diseases? Very widely, and there's many scientists now actively engaged in that type of research, whether it's, for example, neurodegenerative disorders, um, uh, uh, diabetes, uh, complex genetic diseases. Um, cystic fibrosis is a very well understood disease, um, but uh, one of the things we have been working on recently is generating, for example, pancreatic ductal cells that are the target of this disease, a major target of this disease. And uh, there are many mutations that can cause cystic fibrosis, but now you have a screening platform to actually look for drugs for, not just for cystic fibrosis, but for the cystic fibrosis that that person has because of not only the muta mutation in the known d disease gene, but all the other genes in their genome that interact with that. And we need, and it's really, uh, this is what 
has now been called precision medicine or, or, or uh, you know, really medicine that's designed for a patient, not for a disease. Okay, now we're not done yet. It's about to get it more interesting. <laughs> okay, now we take the heart cells that Dr. Evans has made and we ship them over to France to Dr. Mali. And, uh, and, and what, what do you do with them? So basically, based on the, on the clinical features that uh, Dr. Cheng um, can reveal, we, uh, we focus on some, uh, and based also on the mutation uh, occurring in some particular protein, what we call in this particular case, renin receptor, we, we focus on all the calcium that is released into the cardiomyocytes. So calcium is uh, a major component to allow the contraction, actually precede the contraction. And what we do, uh, so back to France, we uh, focus on all the properties that are related to the calcium into the cells. And for that, we basically use different techniques. And uh, also based on what we, we did with uh, Dr. Cheng so far, we, we, uh, we know which uh, part of the cells and which protein in particular we should really focus and try uh, eventually to model the disease. So from basically the initial patient through the IPS, via uh, Dr. Evans, we get cardiomyocyte and we try to model some features uh, of the disease in the dish, still in the dish, okay? So then what we can do, once we, we have those features, those phenotype, uh, we basically can try different drugs that are either under clinical trials or FDA approved and, and see which drug would basically uh, prevent or treat uh, any of those features that we can reveal. So again, let me try to see if, I, if I've got this right. Correct me where I'm wrong. Red blood cells, then stem cells, then heart cells, mm -hmm. okay? And then once you've got that person's particular heart cell, you then introduce the diseases into it, and then and you, you test it against uh, a, a control to see w what the difference is? Yeah, well, well basically the, 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 the idea of patient-specific cardiomyocyte is that the mutation is there already, okay? Mm -hmm. And thanks to uh, Dr. Evans' expertise, we actually can correct some of the stem cells to get a perfect control. So the only difference between the two uh, cell type is just one mutation. Okay, so let me pause there because the audience might not quite understand that because I had trouble understanding it in the beginning. So normally you would find a person who's about the same age, who's also female around Praveen's age, and that would be your control group to see how that reacts differently as opposed to the the one with the mutation in it, which was Praveen cells. But you guys don't do that anymore. Actually, Dr. Evans actually fixes the mutation so that it's Praveen's heart cells, but that are fixed, and that's your control. And then you, and then you test it versus the one that has the mutations. Right. Phenomenal. So all the rest Phenomenal. of the genetics is okay. the same. Yeah, all right, so then you introduce the disease in, and, and I'm sorry, you have the one that's mutated, and then you, uh, what do you do? You experiment with how to fix it? I mean, it's put in layman's terms. We, we, we try to exhibit some of, the, some of the features of the disease in the dish and only in the with the cardiomyocyte. Try to reveal some of the features either uh, by, you know, uh, apply, applying some, some, some uh, pharmacology, ph pharmacological compounds that will activate or inhibit some proteins. Um, and uh, or we try also to uh, uh, improve the maturity of the cells by you know, some, some uh, physiological or pathophysiological stimuli just to reveal the disease. And once we have those features, once we characterize the cells and, and can reveal the features, we then go to the second step, which is basically testing different drugs and see which one would be the best uh, for the patient in the dish 
and maybe eventually for for um, at the clinical uh, level. So, Dr. Chung, would that then um, come back to you and say, okay, Dr. Milley says uh, this is the one that's most likely to work for Praveen, so then do we when we eventually try it and, and, and see how it works uh, for Praveen? Is that roughly right? Right. I think that, you know, thankfully Praveen's doing well right now, so, you know, there's no... Um, she's doing okay with her current med you know, therapy based on the previous procedures she's had. So she's doing quite well, but it has obviously implications for other patients like her. So, um, so, so again, with Dr. Melly's work, that will first at least establish that the mutation is indeed disease-causing. That's the first thing. That's mm -hmm. what we need to do is we need to prove that it really is, this mutation really is causing a problem here. And if she, he can recreate the disease in a dish, then that ups the evidence level for the fact that, okay, this mutation is causing a problem. And then if on top of it, like Dr. Malley says, if he can find the best compound to treat it, then that will be, again, m m even more, you know, even uh, with even greater significance. And then it comes back to me, and then we can think about things, then we can think more big picture. Okay, so how many people are out there with this disease that we don't know about who may have the same mutation? Then you may talk about employing ideas of screening, you know, patients. Now, it's a relatively rare disease, so this is something where it would require multiple, you know, across the nation and international type effort to identify patients with her condition and then doing more wide screen, um, you know, more widespread screening. And if we find that, hey, you know, a certain percentage of patients, usually never 100%, but let's say a good substantial percentage of patients with her similar condition have this mutation, then that would, or at least of the same gene, uh, the same gene is affected, then, um, then you can think about using that same drug that tested so well in the petri dish in a say clinical trial and and if uh, you already had a parent that had these kind of conditions well then you're far more likely to know that you should test right right and so what it might do is for the people who had been dealing with this and it's a mystery and they don't know why and they have to live in panic the rest of their lives am i going to you know literally fall down one day and not get up and have this heart attack in, in a way that couldn't have been predicted, well now we can test for it and then, so one more part of this that I have to understand, you guys build this whole system for understanding it, for mapping it, etc. Then when a person comes in, is the, is the medicine personalized for them? Is there a process you build where you take the blood and it becomes easier so that you guys are building the beginning of it, but it's got to be easier than going through all three of you <laughs> for each patient, right? How do, we, how do we make that process a little more efficient? I mean, the hope is that down the road, you know, that this will become more of a widespread approach. But right now, this is just one case, you know. Mm -hmm. We're just fighting the battle on one particular patient who, again, had the wherewithal to say, hey, test me. There are tons of people out there that we don't have this, either don't have the resources, don't, we don't have the technology, we don't know which gene. So the thing is, we need to take a step back. We don't want to whole scale start screening everyone who has a genetic condition sure, for something yeah. because then you pick up random things that we don't know whether they're of significance or not. So, but, but yes, but down the road, as we sort of start catalog, cataloging more of the um, genes that are associated with these genetic disorders, then we can sort of do more of this approach. Uh, but, you know, it's still in its infant stages, but obviously, you know, it's hopefully something, you know, as Dr. Evans had pointed out, this idea of personalized medicine, which, you know, Dr., you know, uh, that President Obama had raised in the State of the Union address, it's sort of kind of that idea. So, Dr. Evans, is it that the, then once you've mapped out all of this, that still you take somebody's blood uh, from them 
and then you bring it through this process and you go, well, the medicine most likely to work, given the research we've done in the past, is this. Is that how it... Well, I would say that, of course, there's, there's two aspects. One is the, the, sc the screening that we're doing now is, is this physiological screening in a dish to try to replicate the disease. Um, you're not going to want to screen people like that generally. So, but but if, if, for example, this, this mutation is identified as really being responsible for the, for the patient's um, disease, uh, then it's easy to screen for that you know, genetically. You would just mm -hmm. add it on as, as part of standard genetic testing and, uh, ultimately, ultimately it, it, if it was really a, really a strong indication of the disease. So, screening, so screen, genetic screening, uh, you know, there are standard genetic screens right now for more common diseases. Uh, we all imagine that at some point uh, it will become standard protocol to have your genome sequenced. Now, that's controversial because there may be, first of all, there's a lot of issues about protecting patient privacy and that information is a patient's own or a newborn's own uh, genetic information. Um, but uh, ultimately, I think we all believe that at some level that will become standard of care. And, um, but it still uh, is very complicated because of the fact that uh, as we brought up several times, even the identification of this allele. I mean, I can, I can pretty much guarantee you, and it probably was part of the reason why there was some skepticism, of, and, and we're still very, not skeptical, but we're, you know, we're going to test a hypothesis here. We don't know if it's correct. Uh, that that same allele, which is a, let's call a, a mutation, a, a difference, a gene difference, you know, in a different person might not have any uh, consequence at all because they have other protective genes, for example. Okay, and, and so Dr. Melly, you're trying to find out what different medicines could work uh, to help if you already have this condition. But you were saying earlier that Dr. Evans uh, fixed the mutation uh, in order for you to have the control test on it, right? Mm -hmm. So can we fix the mutation in the body without treating it without, uh, with the medicine? Well, the that's a very good question, and there's a lot of fantasy around such a um, uh, possibility. I'm sure may in the future it, it might be possible. Uh, currently, this is not the case, and for, for many reasons. Um, but, uh, you know, like you just said, indeed what we, we, we try to do is to get the perfect control. And the perfect control is just a single point mutation. Um, uh, between the two, that, that makes a difference between the two, the two samples. Because if you pick one patient and another, you always have a genetic background that differs, and you know, some genes might be more expressed in one side or the other side, and so on. Um, question uh, in the future can we just fix a mutation like this in the, in the whole patient, in the whole body? Um, it, technically, it might be possible in the future, and Dr. Evans is maybe more expert than I am to, to answer this. But I think <coughs> currently, definitely, this is not possible. So right now, it's enormously complicated because of what you were just saying. There could be different things that are reacting uh, within each person. So even if you figure out that one mutation, there are, and you try to fix that, it might affect other things in your body. Is that is that right? Well, there's two issues. One, one there's that. Um, but I think more importantly, right now, I mean, f technically, it's feasible to do. Um, it certainly has been done in animal models. Uh, in mice, uh, single uh, mutations have been corrected and cured the mouse. Now, uh, currently, the recommendation, and, 
at, from coming through the NIH for, for federal funding is that we shouldn't even be doing these experiments in humans because it's just too early. We need to take the time to think it through because if you can correct mutations, you, could, you, know, you can do any kind of editing that you want in the genome and that has serious ethical consequences. So um, currently, in, at least in the U.S., uh, we're not doing any types of experiments like that in people uh, other than for use in a dish. To, mm -hmm. to actually study the biology behind um, specific changes in the genome. Okay, but somebody could. Somebody could. Right, so I even if we're not doing it here, somewhere in outer Mongolia. Well, there's, there has been a report um, from a Chinese group that they have modified uh, the human genome. Mm -hmm. um, and, that, and of course, doing it in a, in a manner where there would be no opportunity for, the, uh, for embryos to survive or emerge or, or or, uh, uh, you know, actually grow. Um, so done at very, very early stages <coughs> of embryogenesis. And uh, there was a bit of outrage about that in that um, I think generally scientists worldwide believe that this is very powerful technology and we, we, it's okay, there's, we have so much to do. There's so much we don't understand. There's so much great experiments that can be done that we can do those for a while as we work through this and the ethical issues and what, where and how the human genome should be modified. Okay, so now we're gonna get, get a tiny bit into fantasy world here because with the work you guys are doing are, is super real, it's very important and it has real consequences for people in the real world. Okay, but now that we've opened up this interesting, uh, I don't wanna say Pandora's box, but <laughs> so I, I do wanna blow people's minds a little bit. If you quote unquote fix a genome, within a person, not treat it with medicine, but fix it within the person. If they have kids later, they would actually pass on the new genome that you corrected, correct? It depends on how you corrected it. So you mm -hmm. have to correct it not in, you could correct it in every cell in the body. If you didn't correct it in the germline, so the cells that will give rise to either sperm or oocytes, then you're not gonna pass it on. So, mm -hmm. so it's, it's very possible, you could imagine in science fiction world, uh, coming up with strategies that fix the gene in every cell in your body or in just some cells of your body. So what we would call tissue-specific correction. Say, let's fix the gene in all the cells of the heart because, in fact, that's the only place that this gene being mutated we think is important. Other genes maybe are important in all cells, but if, but if, it's, if it's done in a with a strategy where you wouldn't modify the germline, then it wouldn't be passed on. Mm -hmm. And could you, if it if you were so disposed, change the genome in a way where you would be, the person would be taller? That shouldn't be probably difficult. You, you could stronger? Stronger. Uh-oh. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So these are designer, the so-called designer uh, genes that, that uh, you know, there are certain physical characteristics that are uh, fairly straightforward to alter, uh, knowing what people know about uh, uh, growth and development and hormonal systems, etc. So it's... It, when would they... Uh, so one last piece of fantasy here and then we'll get back to the real world. When would they do that quote-unquote fix? Let's say you wanted to. You're, you're, it's 38 years out. It's not here. It's in outer Mongolia. Somebody says, I want to make a super fast, tall, strong person, right? And I want to do it for whatever reason. Would you do it it, when it's a fetus, when, it, when the baby is born, can you do it to an adult? Well, we're, we are in super fantasy land here, so right, right. Um, 
it's always going to be easier to fix something with current technology the earlier you do it because it's just there's less cells to fix. So the, if you could fix uh, a genetic, genetically edit uh, from at the one cell stage or what's called a zygote, so a fertilized egg, uh, that would be by far the easiest place to, to do the editing. And then it would then it would fix every cell in the body. Now, of course, that would only work if you're starting from one cell. If you're starting from a grown adult, then it's a, a much more challenging. But for example, it should be very feasible right now if you had a, um, uh, uh, so th there, there's, a, there's a way that you can mix uh, stem cell biology with uh, gene therapy, which is, there are trials ongoing right now uh, that are basically adding genes, for example, to your hematopoietic uh, stem cells that make all the blood cells of your body. We can take those out of a person's body, uh, genetically alter by adding a gene, and those stem cells will can be put back in, go back to the bone marrow, repopulate your entire body. And so you, you can cure diseases that way. And there are tr clinical trials to cure blood diseases like thalassemia, for example. Now, I, it should not be difficult. In fact, it, today it would be feasible to, to do, use the same approach, but instead of adding a gene, actually go in and fix the mutation in that sense. And then all the blood cells would be fixed and it wouldn't be passed on. So those kinds of therapies, probably in the next 10, 15 years, may be moving all the way to clinical use. Okay, so that's a perfect way to come back uh, to today and, and, and the work you guys are doing. So it has both very specific um, uh, purpose. So for example, Dr. Chung, if it turns out, knock on wood, one of Praveen's daughters has the same uh, mutation that she does, uh, well then all this work can find, hopefully find medicine to be able to mo more effectively treat her if she needs it, correct? Yes. And so that's very feasible mm -hmm. fairly soon. Five year window or so, roughly speaking. Okay, so that's great that we might be saving people's lives. Your work saves people's lives today if, if, if this comes to fruition, so that's phenomenal. And then secondly, there are broader implications because that's just one example. Mm -hmm. And then you can take this and multiply it out as Dr. Evans was just talking about to other diseases and see the cases in which you can specifically design medicine or perhaps even fix it within the body. Is that, is that right? I think so, yeah. That's phenomenal. <laughs> I have to say throughout the interview, I kept thinking in my head because I'm a goofy guy, Science. <laughs> All right, well, I, I speak for the entire Young Turks community and our audience in saying thank you. Uh, we really appreciate the work that you do on behalf of not just uh, the people that we know, but humanity. Uh, so thank you, Dr. Evans, Dr. Chung, Dr. Melly. Uh, it's been a great pleasure talking to you.